How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, so delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing, with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Our dwarves are now in Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now. And then return to fully appreciate to this bump and a tragedy. Did you really think you could destroy this ship? She's defied space and time. She's been to a place you couldn't possibly imagine. And now it is time to go back. I know. To hell. You know nothing. Hell is only a word. The reality is much, much worse. The following movie is rated R. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and monthly dives into the B-movies of yesteryear. Tonight, we're continuing our series of commentaries for commercial-slash-critical flops with the 1997 Paul W.S. Anderson space hell movie, Event Horizon. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. What we're recording, we don't need ears to hear. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure if I should be terrified or just posting this to Reddit shower thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> and our other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. In a deleted scene, I too have a reverse crab walk. It's it's just hours of us flaying you for no reason. It was never going to be in the movie, but we figured as long as we have the torture equipment, why not use it? That's the only way I'll learn. (laughs) I already feel uncomfortable with this conversation. Moving on. Uh, Well, hold on. First, can we just backtrack for a second? I'm really in love with the idea of someone being horrified with the concept of, my God, he's mutilated his ears. Because you don't (laughs) see that very often. The ears are important, man. Oh, it's like Randy Couture. My God, he can't hear anymore. No, actually, technically, I can. I only mutilate the outside. I'm I'm still uh, fully capable of uh, Look, hearing. No, it's the, just the... it's muffled mostly. It's it's not well, but you know, I I can yeah, mostly the shape understand. The ear is important. It helps. It helps funnel sound. And on top it's of true. that, like. Uh, like you put glasses on, they don't have a catch anymore, so they just slide down your face, and you look silly. You'd have to, I don't know, get like. Those uh those theater monocles that have a little stand on them that you can hold up with one hand. What an odd ending to that one episode of The Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy wasn't really that bad off. I mean... Yeah, at least he still had <laughs> goddamn ears. I'm enough at last, indeed. This Thanksgiving, I'm thankful that our audience still has ears. 
to listen hey. to our fine, fine show. We're going to get so many angry letters from people who are like, look, man, I lost my ears in Nam. I can't believe you'd make that joke. <laughs> All right, uh, that's enough. I'm trying to think of jokes they made in Harry Potter about being one-eared, and I, I, can't, I can't think of any to segue out of this. So uh, this is a project for the folks at home. Just think of Harry Potter and think of one-eared people and just assemble your own funny joke slash way out of the situation. One you of your people. <laughs> just, you know, put your finest on it. Anyways, unlike our first two entries in Bop in a Tragedy, being Virus and Deep Rising, I think this movie is actually pretty good. Virus had some fun effects, and Deep Rising is goofy and charming, but this, I think, is is a pretty effective horror film. I think it has plenty of disturbing moments. I really love the uh, production design. I think it's a legit horror movie. And to further contrast it from our first two movies, Event Horizon somehow doesn't have its own fancy collector's edition from Arrow or Scream or Kino or any of the other boutique labels. Weird. So apparently the worse your movie is, the more likely it is it will get lots and lots of special features down the road. Anyways, to compound the bummer, that part is, the film didn't catch on when it was released, and it was just this huge box office dud. So even now when people talk about it, they mostly bring it up just to say, oh, that's the good Paul W.S. Anderson movie, or just to compare it to the video game Dead Space, which is a gosh darn shame. Agreed. Good. I'm glad we're all on the same page. <laughs> I'm glad we're all pissed off for this movie. <laughs> ah, this is going to be but, the angriest commentary we've ever done. But no, it is legitimately kind of an odd choice for the ending of Bop and a Tragedy, at least this round of it, to be doing Event Horizon. A, I'm sorry, I don't care what sarcastic people on the internet could say, but just a legitimately good movie. Totally. Yet, I will still defend it as our third entry, because... This movie, as we will get into, is still laden with tragedy. <laughs> yeah. And, and space boats, and, which are like sea boats. You know, basically the same. This movie is... There's a lot of weird overlap between these three movies. Particularly Event Horizon. <laughs> it still forms an accidental trilogy. Madness at Sea Space. Madness at Sea Space. The same thing the doctor told me. Anyways, before we get into this commentary, <laughs> I think everybody at home should make a drink to go along with this. Uh, this was based off a real drink, but I didn't write down the name, so I changed some of the ingredients, and now I'm just calling it the Event Horizon, and I'm pretending I invented it. Awesome. What you're going to want to do, start off with five blackberries, one and a half ounces of gold rum, a half ounce of allspice dram, three-fourths ounce simple syrup, three-fourths ounce fresh lemon juice, half an ounce of egg white. This part is your choice. I went with a couple of different food dyes mixed together to make the drink black, but you could also get one bar spoon of activated charcoal, and then for a garnish, uh, three dashes of Angostura bitters. So what you're going to do, get yourself a cocktail shaker, drop in the blackberries, muddle those up, then add all the remaining ingredients besides the bitters, and dry shake it. So no ice, just shake it. Uh, about 20 seconds, you want to get the egg whites nice and foamy. Then, pop open the shaker, add some ice, shake vigorously until it's chilled. Then you're going to double strain that into a uh, coupe glass and garnish it with three dashes of bitters. Uh, drop in the food dye if you haven't already and get it to the right color you want. What I was going for was a nice deep black with a little bit of hint of red. 
because space horror, blood in space. Uh, and the foamy top kind of makes it look like you know, the cosmos, man. I also added a little bit of silver powder, uh, edible silver powder. Please don't just take flakes of silver uh, and mix it in there, too. So I got a sparkly black, red, foamy mix. And it looks like the you know, Milky Way galaxy to me. It's delicious. Uh, besides that, thematically, I don't have much to say. Uh, it's a black cocktail for a horror movie set in space. <laughs> I just uh, had a suggestion, since you had a little trouble with the name. Call it The Star's My Destination. I have no bitters, and I must drink. <laughs> Adds a touch of class to that edible silver. That's <laughs> We're just going to have a list of drink pun names next time, and that's going to determine what our commentaries are for. Didn't we already do Star Wars? Yeah, I don't care, but I have an Ewok pun I have to use. Hair of the Ewok. Or Hair of the Wookiee. Either one, I think, works pretty well. Now, folks, what I want you to do with this particular drink is I want you to make it walk out of your house. Don't drink it. Don't drink it yet. Not yet. Oh, no, you want to drink it, Mike. This one's delicious. Walk out of your house. It's a brisk, brisk Wednesday afternoon. Make sure it's a Wednesday afternoon. Walk down, down the sidewalk, down a ways, find the nearest park. Like a park. It's beautiful. It's sunny out. It's a beautiful Wednesday afternoon. What you do is I want you to stand there, you know, gaze around, spy. An old elderly person sitting on a bench. Why don't you go up to that that elderly elderly person who's lived a long, long life. Many experiences you could learn from. What you do is just grab that old person by the hair, pull their jaw open the next thing. Like after you've startled them, pull their jaw open and force feed them this drink. All while saying, you will now meet the dark inside of you. <laughs> I can dig it. And then you can go home and uh, continue our commentary. <laughs> We've given the audience a lot of homework on tonight's show. I feel a little bad about that. Yeah, you know, it's you know, it's work making them. It should be work listening to them. That's true. That's true. The old blue collar Mike says. <laughs> Legit though, this this thing is damn smooth. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna add this to my regular drink repertoire. So now that you got your drink, and you've possibly committed several crimes, we're about to kick this movie off. If you've never listened to a commentary before, it's a pretty basic concept. We're going to talk over the film while we watch it. And if you would like to join us, you can queue up the movie on your own setup. Mike will do a countdown, and when he hits play, you hit play with him. And then you watch the movie, you listen to us, maybe have a giggle or not. I don't know. I can't predict the future. And uh, everybody wins like, subscribe, etc. Mike, are you ready? Can the um, new tagline for our podcast be a giggle to a scream? A giggle to a scream. <laughs> Only if we review killer clown movies. Like Ooh, Stitches. I would like to do that. Uh, that be next year's big series. <laughs> <laughs> I have no problems with this whatsoever. I will commentate the fuck out of Terrifier. But anyway. <laughs> One. Two. Three. The facts were these. On Rotten Tomatoes, Event Horizon... I should have been doing that the whole time. Event Horizon has a 27% rating. Not great. Uh, the average rating is a 4.8 out of 10. Out of 73 reviews, 53 of them were rotten. 20 positive. The critics' consensus was, despite a strong opening that promises sci-fi thrills, Event Horizon quickly devolves into an exercise of style over substance whose flashy effects and gratuitous gore 
fail to mask its over-reliance on horror cliches. 61% of audiences like it according to Rotten Tomatoes. What I love about that review is you can kind of just take cliche from the end of that sentence and just say, I don't like its reliance on horror. <laughs> cliche is always a very cliche is always a very um weird complaint in most reviews, like predictable. We ran into that with like deep rising and stuff. Predictable, cliche. Now, granted that those things do occasionally hurt films depending on how they're done, but I feel like that's often an overused criticism because no one seems to know what that exactly means whenever they're using it. I think in this case, there's just a lot of, to be kind, homage going on. Like uh, yeah. the set design clearly has a lot of alien in it. The, everything down to the suits, some of the laser effects, it all kind of harkens back to Alien. And there's a surprising amount of the haunting in this movie as well. So I, I can see why critics would go, hmm, hold up here, this seems a little familiar. That said, everything is a remix. So that taking those ideas and trying to do something new with them, I'm not going to complain too much, unless it's clearly like, hey... They just 100% remade Kill Bill, but now the swords are laser beams. I mean, that should happen eventually. Also, most depressing opening text crawl in movie history. Like, wow, we've done it. only knew. 2030. Mankind still developing large steel wall. couple other facts here just so we've got all the principal players down while this text scrolls which god i hate this text opening uh our yeah. director paul ws anderson who i mean we all are familiar with for his various franchises death race mortal Kombat, resident evil guy's done some stuff uh the writer philip eisner the music was a two-parter we had michael common doing the more traditional elements and a band orbital doing the more techno-y bits Cinematography from Adrian Biddle. Uh, you might not recognize the name, but he has filmed many of the things you have grown up on. Oh, yeah. Uh, he got to start working with Ridley Scott as a line puller and clapper loader, but eventually moved on to be a DP for Aliens, Princess Bride, Willow, Thelma and Louise, which was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, Judge Dredd, the Stallone one, the World is Not Enough, The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, Reign of Fire, and V for Vendetta. So, you know, the guy's got his creds. Uh, our editor is Martin Hunter. The movie was released August 15th, 1997, on a $60 million budget, and saw a box office return of $26.7 million. Not stellar. And here we have what might be considered the first religious iconography in the movie with the large kind of cross-shaped window and the hovering man in front of it covered in ritualistic scars. The movie's really loaded with kind of medieval and religious iconography. Makes sense considering the whole plot is, hey, we opened a portal to hell. But I always am interested in that mesh when it comes to sci-fi, that in the future, in space, there's still the concept of God, and how do you reconcile all of the history of Earth 
into the pure future aspects of what we imagine outer space life will be like. It's amazing how few horror movies, especially how few sci-fi horror movies, really tackle religion. Like, the only time you really see religion pop up in horror is in possession movies. And it's always fascinating to see religion uh, portrayed through a science fiction lens. Especially in a movie like this where we get a very uh, a-religious version of hell. But even through that lens, like there's so much iconography that you cannot possibly get away from whenever you invoke the presence of hell in a, in a story. So I'm, I'm, I was very impressed by how this movie was able to balance both of those things. Like it never feels like an especially religious film. It still feels very grounded in sci-fi, yet you still have those moments like the one we just saw where it's made very clear. Like You're supposed to be thinking about certain things while watching the rest of this. We're not going to say it, but it's going to be there. Uh, boy, this is a bad effect shot. <laughs> <laughs> the shakiness as they go uh, from miniature into the set. And even on the commentary, uh, Anderson mentions like this really doesn't work for him. And it's a shame because I think a lot of the miniature work in this movie is phenomenal. I think the... <laughs> Look at this chair. Just this chair. This practical design of this weird chair that brings the captain into the cockpit. It's a lot of fun. I really like the practical stuff in this movie. The movie itself, all the set design, all that is beautiful. Honestly, uh, the pro- yeah. uh, here's a cool, cool thing I discovered though was the um, production designer um, Joseph Bennett. Um, a worked on Deep Blue Sea, which amuses me. <laughs> um, but he was also the Wonderful. production designer on Dust Devil and Hardware, the two Stan- um, Richard Stanley joints, and I could, re- I can really see it in this. You, you definitely can. That was something I, I didn't know. The uh, the grungy but beautifulness of um, the surroundings. I'll just As we mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, the Nostromo going on in this set. And I'll leave it up to the viewer to decide if that's derivative or just the fact that Alien is such a classic it's almost impossible to make a sci-fi movie now and not be inspired by it. It kind of set the standard for all other sci-fi films where I think if you didn't have something from Alien in your film, people would think, that's weird. Something from the set is missing. Well, that's something we talked about uh, during the virus commentary. Like, At this point, if it doesn't look a little bit like Alien, it looks fake. <laughs> Also, we have one of my favorite 90s sci-fi things. People undressing and nobody noticing. <laughs> so it would not be a 90s sci-fi movie without co-ed showers. Very I think you're going to comment the on the fact that everybody's smoking in this movie. For something made late 90s, there is a surprising amount of casual smoking. All the good guys are smoking, the bad guys smoke. Everyone is just fine with cigarettes. Just terribly dangerous. 
Even the doctor has no issues lighting up a cigarette. The future cigarettes, uh, so, okay. So we just flashed back a lot of our crew. We should probably introduce uh, the cast, just because there are some very notable names in here. Uh, Sam Neill. Do I need to bother going over the guy's career? Uh, we all know what he's done and love his movies. There's Lawrence Fishburne, which is the same deal. That guy has just a mile worth of genre cred. Then there's Jason Isaacs, who isn't as well-known as Neil or Fishburne, but the dude was Lucius Malfoy. Uh, that's a career by itself. But he's had turns in stuff like Armageddon, The Patriot, Black Cock Down, A Cure for Wellness, tons of voice work, and a lot of television credits. And my personal favorite, Sean Pertwee, who, I mean... Not not all over the place, movie-wise. Doesn't have a huge filmography. But I'll always love him just for his role as Sarge in Dog Soldiers. <laughs> and, I'm like, give me the shits! <laughs> God, I love that character so much. Uh, it, it's, it's to the point where I even got really excited for his like two-second cameo in the movie Howl. Just like, oh my God, it's Sarge! Oh, he's gone. Okay. <laughs> and now he will live forever as Alfred. Oh, God, I forgot about that, too. I can't even believe I didn't put that in my notes. Um, so going back to the concept of this ripping off of Alien, I think it's kind of ironic. The first draft of the film that was presented to Anderson was even closer to the Alien films in his mind. Uh, he went back and tweaked a few things, such as the original story was about the ship being not actually haunted, but there were aliens on board the ship that were giving people visions so it was kind of an alien thing where there's a monster on board they had to vanquish. And Anderson said, you know, the classic space monster movie is Alien. I, I don't want to do a space alien movie because then I'm just ripping off Alien completely. So they retweaked it to have this interdimensional hellscape idea, which I like. I think we get a lot of movies that have touched on this. It's become very popular just from the video game Doom, where it probably started I don't know when Doom started using the concept of space portals equaling hell. But I think that idea is much less used than the concept of, oh, there's a freaky alien on board this ship that's killing people one by one. Not to mention there's kind of the elephant in the room of if they went with that orig original screenplay, they'd pretty much just be doing Solaris. <laughs> they mentioned yeah. that too <laughs> on the commentary. Like someone on the cast claimed they never saw Solaris, and Anderson was giving him shit. <laughs> like, you sure you never saw Solaris? <laughs> At least with uh, the revised premise, this comes across as very evocative of Solaris, but with a very hard horror twist. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, as silly as that premise sounds, when you try to describe it to somebody you have to admit that is one of the most original sci-fi horror premises ever and still has a, at least a footing in like normal sci-fi conventions like we created a portal we don't know where the hell it goes but it's somewhere bad and we have to stop it we, we don't know where the hell it goes i see what you did there shut up cody you saw nothing Gee. That's what ah. uh, that's what I ended up loving about Event Horizon. I first saw it because I didn't actually the first time I watched Event Horizon, I didn't know the hell thing like was what the movie was about exactly. Mm -hmm. So it ended up unfolding uh, to me like very organically, 
Um, and it did remind me of Doom, which, by the way, there was a Doom sound effect earlier in the film. Uh, so they're aware. Um, <laughs> That's that the door opening up, I believe. Yep. Uh, I use that classic sound effect. But um, not enough horror films... Uh, I'm sorry, not enough sci-fi films that are going for, for horror actually use a lot of supernatural elements. Uh, particularly of something like Hell. There's not a lot of crossover between you know, those two types of horror films. And I've always thought that's kind of the most ripe area. Because uh, you get it in, like, Doom, but it's that's more of, like, an action thing. <laughs> so, to see something played straight on that, to me, it, it's a more interesting combination because we've seen the the period pieces or things like The Exorcist or whatever that the whole uh, dominion of something else invading our world. You don't see that on uh, a sci-fi scale. And I like the merging of those two worlds more than if it was just something taking place in modern day. Because it feels something that's alien to us, plus something that's alien to the physical world interacting. Uh, which is what makes, I think, the a lot of the sequences in this movie so unique and actually helps break the mold of the alien thing and actually creates more of like a twist where, yes, everything's very evocative of alien, uh, even the crew members. But when they go on there, you know, they're none of, they all do feel like characters from aliens. Like it has kind of that setup, but they're not really heavily armed. They're not Marines or all, all that. They're, they're kind of evoking those characters. Uh, and then you put them in that place and you kind of watch the movie break down the tropes of that through something unexpected, which is actually introducing hell itself instead of an alien entity. So it I don't think it's intentional. It's definitely not intentional, but it ends up having um, not a meta quality to it, but almost a deconstructionist quality to it um, on sci-fi films I like how when you stop saying that Neil was saying none of that was true he was just finishing <laughs> that line exactly when you stopped talking <laughs> damn it Neil quit tearing us apart <laughs> so right now we're going into the explanation of the, the plot mechanic of the movie of how they expected to move faster than light and the wormhole idea which goes into the dimensional gateway of hell this is... I'm not sure when this idea was started. You see it all the time in sci-fi movies now. Uh, I, I think it was like a Stephen Hawking idea that sci-fi writers really latched onto because it's far enough out there that it's very interesting, but it's also something you can explain very simply, like this movie does with the folding piece of paper. Uh, a lot of our viewers are probably familiar with the concept from the movie, Fu or the, movie the show Futurama, because I believe was how the ship that traveled in that cartoon as well. But I, I fucking love if Sam Neill said, it doesn't move through space, it pulls space around it. <laughs> but I wonder if Hawking's paper, whatever it was introduced in, came out around this time? Because you don't see a lot of stuff from before this, I, I can't think of any offhand, that mentions the concept. You know, something like Star Wars, they just say, oh, we're going to, you know, Hyperspeed, they just engage the hyperdrive and whoosh, away they go. It doesn't, they don't bother to explain the hard science behind it. And Futurama came out 
late 90s. So it was about the same time as this. So we might be seeing like the birth of a trope right now where they've appropriated the idea of wormhole travel. Well, I'm sure our science listeners are like, you idiots, this came out like in the 70s. Everyone's known about it for decades, but <sighs> oh, well, I'm not a science guy. I'm not Bill Nine it up here. I still feel like this would have been better explained with an ant crossing across a, st- a string. <laughs> also, so, I, I hate to uh, follow up that very good point with something stupid, but does it bother you how much Sean Pertwee and Jason Isaacs look like brothers? Yeah. <laughs> I love the way they play the off each other, too. Yeah, they could have. I like the early little insert shots of Isaacs taking a drag off a cigarette and then carefully tossing it across the table to Pertwee so he can smoke it and then Pertwee fucks up and drops it on the ground and has to chase after it. <laughs> There's so much little character moments in this movie, like just Fishborn going, Smitty, as soon as Pertwee walks in. <laughs> like, you really believe that this is a crew that has a lot of affection for each other and is very, very uncomfortable with some guy showing up and dragging them out of their vacation. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually yeah. kind of amazing because all of these actors have, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them have gone on to do other really big movies or chains or franchises, whatever you hear about them and you know about them from other things. But at the time, you know, they were still cutting their teeth. So it's it's really cool that uh, the casting agents on this were able to pull together this good of a group. Like, did they kind of lucked into it? Or, well, I'm assuming it's their jobs at skill. It really works out because you feel... Um immediately ingrained in the group. And the film actually does a good job of, despite the fact we've been introduced to Weir before all of these characters, because of the way they act versus the way he acts, and even though he's been introduced as the main character, of course, there's that's the, kind of a switcheroo thing, but we feel uncomfortable that he's interacting with them because they all seem chummy. <laughs> They're all very chummy, and they treat him like, oh, this asshole. <laughs> no one wants to be Weir's friend, and he's very standoffish in his character. So yeah, you get a clear divide between the science guy and the rescue team. It's almost like an, an old western, where <laughs> there's all the cattle rustlers, and then there's the company man coming here to tell us what to do. <laughs> On that point about company men, uh, I was very relieved watching this movie to find there was no like evil earth conspiracy to be doing this. (laughs) And there was no evil corporation like in every sci-fi movie now that was doing all these nasty things on purpose to develop like an ultimate weapon or take over even more of the galaxy they already own. You know, there is no Wayland Yutani orchestrating things for once. It's, it's just like a weird, horrible happenstance accident that bumps into this rescue team. It's it's a horrible accident all around. It's not orchestrated as part of a large conspiracy, and that's very refreshing. Also, I think it, it heightens uh, kind of the scare factor of the concept by making it accidental. It's the idea that, yeah, we accidentally opened a portal to hell, and now you know, we're being ripped apart by chains. It's, it's you know, even Doom has... Uh, kind of it on purpose in many ways, but that's going for a non-horror vibe, so it works. I, I think you actually diminish the vibe, uh, the horror vibe of it if you, you know, have uh, an evil 
human behind all of the, like the supernatural bullshit. Yeah, and it changes the mode of the movie as well. If there's an evil corporation, I mean, it immediately shifts the thematics in the movie into a story about human greed and that kind of stuff. If it's a government, then it's a political story. If it's just happenstance, then you can go off of it and spin into other areas. Like this one, they choose religion instead to focus on. Uh, of course, there's also the idea that this new advanced spaceship opened a portal to hell, which kind of goes into the original mode of horror where there's that idea of technology bad, which is really <laughs> regressive and not my favorite mode of horror, but often some of, some of the best horror movies are centered around that concept. I mean, hell, look at Frankenstein. And it makes it almost Lovecraftian in a way. Like, nobody is coming into this with uh, bad intentions. Like, Samuel, like, it, it's a, such a shame that the uh, briefing scene was cut because you basically get to hear Sam Neill monologue as part of his character introduction, how the event horizon to him is the only thing that's going to save humanity. Like he says, without event horizon, human evolution begins here. We are trapped on this planet. So he has, like, as much as he's a character that's kind of ruled by guilt and a certain amount of arrogance, he does have good intentions and like in a Lovecraft story, when people try to uh, broaden their minds and explore uh, beyond what should be the human reach, they are met with the infinite, and the infinite always breaks them. Damn yeah. you, Pikmin, and your models! That, that's, <laughs> that scene also, if it were in there, would uh, set up a more interesting, I think, um, dichotomy between Weir and Miller where Weir is for the greater good, well, and Miller is will not leave a single person behind. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, that's obviously what the film's you know going for main thrust. But you, it it still works because you do the character, you know, the protagonist switcheroo between uh, Weir and Miller. But it, with with you losing that added scene. There's not a lot putting those two against each other other than Weir is acting like a dick. <laughs> like right here, we've, we have this tension, which doesn't even seem that founded. Like, okay, dude, I know you've been waiting several years to see your ship, but doesn't it make sense to go check it out and make sure it's safe first and do the rescue team having done their job? Yeah. If you look at it from a logical point of view, it's like, yes, of course the captain's right. Give him 10 goddamn minutes. The ship's not going anywhere. <laughs> There could be bees in there. Yeah, that's the, that scene is actually like a weird treasure trove of stuff that would have made this movie work a lot better. Like, there's that amazing atmospheric moment where they listen to the recording that is left behind at the event horizon. And you could hear a pin drop as soon as it ceases. And behind... Sam Neill is a model of an old-timey ship. I fucking, like, it's not subtle at all, but I just love <laughs> Anderson going, yes, think about that. This is an accursed voyage. This is the Demeter. <laughs> I've always uh, been thoroughly charmed anytime movies try to do zero-G without the use of CGI. 
It is like old time sci-fi where it's like, here's some strings. We'll we'll edit those out. Just kind of kick your feet a little bit and we'll film in slow motion. (laughs) I'm amazed that this movie was originally going to be completely weightless. Like Could you imagine trying to do the vomit comet in one of those suits? Like you just feel miserable until all of a sudden <laughs> I'm freeze a bird, and then it all just crashed down back on you again. Well, considering they couldn't sit down or stand for too long, I think they'd appreciate being weightless for a moment. <laughs> just that one brief second of joy. So uh, we've already had some big CGI shots in the film. Uh, the major one being Sam Neill's introduction where the camera pans and spins around, shows he's actually on a, a satellite, and you can see Earth behind him. Apparently that one took up something like a third of the effects budget by itself. <laughs> uh, and you have to remember, this was 97, so this is a pretty progressive to go for all of these effects in a movie. Most of them don't hold up. Uh, all the debris kind of floating around in, in the corridor looks very fake. Whenever someone walks through something like a... a floating bit of coolant the cgi there really bothers me oh yeah paul w anderson has has had his fair share of movies with really dated cgi and i guess that's what he gets for being an early adapter this one works out though because there's so many practical things going along here these lasers i mean that's just a little bit of smoke in a room so those stand out the the costumes are fully real (laughs) Uh, as the actors would probably let you know because they were like 70 pounds or something insane. I love how haunted house that scare was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, floating hand. See, virus, this is how you do a haunted house movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the uh, tragedy of Anderson. He is a director has who has proved time and time and time again that he does not know how to utilize CGI well, yet it's his obsession. <laughs> He's like a mini George Lucas in that effect uh, respect. Ooh. Sorry. Very similar uh, to Steven Summers as well. Yeah. Going off the idea, though, of the, the practical parts of this movie saving it, this set Ooh. design, holy God shit. Damn. The meat grinder hallway is amazing. The way it's lit just makes it look like nothing else in sci-fi. Oh, man, I could just stare at it all day long. I think that's amazing. Plus, I love the effect it had on the crew. Like, trying to walk through that thing was like <laughs> being in a fun house, so they could never walk a straight line, and they're always falling over. Oh, fucking footage of Lawrence Fishburne going, Whoa! It's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. Well, apparently, even Biddle, when he wanted to film it, had to do, like, these kind of long takes that zoom in, or very steady shots, because he couldn't walk a straight line down the thing. They didn't put dolly tracks on it. So if they try to do, like, steady camp stuff, you just kind of wobble all over the place like he was drunk. <laughs> so we're entering the uh, the Gravity Drive, and this is... Um, to, it's weird to talk about the artistic nature of Paul W.S. Anderson. So <laughs> in, in the script, the Gravity Drive was very sci-fi looking. I think it was like a black orb, like, suspended in the air or something. It was a very smooth, uh, you know pristine, clean space, and Anderson's thing was, after, you know, he decided that it should be hell instead, was also the gravity drive should look like the lament configuration. It should have uh, that kind of uh, a vibe to it, 
And he did end up bringing in Clive Barker to consult on the look of the film. <laughs> I fucking love. See, I figured he just sat there and he went, you know, this would be great if somehow we could just make maybe like a sort of a bomb design that Batman might have to defuse <laughs> in one of his, his big climatic too, huh? adventures. <laughs> Every time I see the bomb in The Dark Knight Rises, I go... Did they just raid the Paramount like prop store and just go, this is good. I don't know what it's used for, but we can use this. Here's what's fucked up. So the bomb in Dark Knight Rises looks like the gravity drive in Event Horizon. And in Interstellar, McConaughey explains fucking folding space the literally exact same way Sam Neill does in Event Horizon. <laughs> which means that has to be intentional. And Nolan's point. a big yeah. Anderson fan. I, I can see that. So, God, correct me if I'm wrong. If I've got the timeline right, this is the movie that gave us the trope of 90 swirly ring designs. Because immediately after this, we have, like, Dark City, X-Men, Contact. Like, <laughs> the official aesthetic for Fancy Science Machine in the 90s was spinning metal rings. That is true. City was ninety seven as well, I think. Yeah, uh, imagine Rufus Sewell just tied to that thing. Oh shit! Dark <laughs> City was actually ninety eight. Yeah, this was before. So I've heard some complaints saying that you know this is style over substance. There's no reason why we should design this machine to look so medieval. Uh, to which I say, go fuck yourself. Like a movie's <laughs> exactly. not allowed to have a cool design. I never understand that complaint. Like, ah, oh, it's it's supposed to look fucking cool and weird and shit. Doesn't matter if it's not functional. It's, yeah. yeah, I don't I don't give a shit if none of this makes perfect logical sense. It's impressionistic. It's it's like it, who cares? It looks amazing. <laughs> it sets a mood. It does what it needs to in a horror film. It makes spooky, you uneasy. Spooky. Also, Hellboy had rotating fins as well. That was an oh, international yeah. portal yeah. that brought Hellboy back. <laughs> it was, that was well, 2004, so apparently the, the trend is going strong. Well, I always take enormous umbrage with the complaint of style over substance, because if... Sometimes if style they, is the substance. Exactly. Yeah. The director knows what it's doing. Style is substance. Why do you... like? Sometimes you enjoy a particular work of art... Because it's meaty and it leaves you with a lot to think about. And sometimes it just looks aesthetically pleasing. Like you wouldn't like look at a Renaissance painting and say, ah, that that Renoir, it's style over substance. It just looks pretty. Those shadows are all wrong. What look was Rembrandt starry trying to say? Night. That starry night's incorrect. Van Gogh, you silly bitch. Uh, so right now, apparently whoever designed this, I think the joke they made in the commentary was it was a Star Trek bridge. Because anytime something rumbles, the ship just explodes in a shower of sparks. Again, not logical, but it makes a wonderful graphic when you just have characters diving and just little sparks flying all around them. I, I Again, I don't understand who would make a keyboard that's filled with gunpowder, but... <laughs> well, how, how do you think these spaceships have the self-destruct mode? <laughs> My god, all the space is getting in. Zoom. Uh, also, and this was this was conjecture on IMDb. 
but the spinning rings in the meat grinder are supposed to be the the rings of hell like in Dante's Inferno leading up to the center of hell which is the gateway considering the rest of the imagery in the film sure maybe uh i don't know uh, i, I believe anderson actually really did cool talk design. about that at some point the entire tunnel like there's um it's supposed to represent like each ring of of Dante's hell because there are uh, different passages ways you have to enter to get to the gravity well. And there's gravity a bunch well, of floating cans of chicken around the gluttony ring. <laughs> Delicious. I like how in the space I can say cans of chicken and that makes sense. Cans <laughs> of chicken. Just cans of chicken as far as the eye can see. What a wonderful future we live in, son. Oh, it's dry. This truly is hell. Anyway. <laughs> and you Turkey's, rip your eyeballs out. Turkey's a little dry. <laughs> so as we're seeing right now, I think the ocean is a great setting for horror, and also space is just a perfect setting for horror. You're on your own. Nobody. Oh, the corpse skull. I want to talk about this for a second. <laughs> One. What a fun special effect. Two. A little bit of trivia. When they filmed it, one of the special effects guys took a Barbie and baked it into the gore in the center of the dummy. So when it collapsed, they just had a frozen dummy they dropped on the floor to shatter. The first time they did it, it broke all apart, and in the center of it was just this gore-covered Barbie doll. So they had to reset and do it a second time. (laughs) Which I think would have been a funny Easter egg. Just leave it in, see what people think. Like, why was there a Barbie in that man? My God, he went through hell. That's what hell is, having Barbie dolls shoved into your anus. Okay, this gore will be cut later. (laughs) What I love is, what an odd troll that is to the movie. (laughs) Uh, I edit around this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, to the better point than dolls in dummies, uh, it's space. It's perfect because you can't cheat. No one can rescue you quickly. This is the rescue team. And we already got a title card that said it took like over 50 days to get there. They have 20 hours to survive this trip because they're running out of air. They're truly on their own, which is just perfect because you have that isolation. You don't have to do anything stupid like, my cell phone can't reach center command. It's already taken care of just in the premise. Plus, everything in space really wants you dead. There's the cold. There's the vacuum of space. There's the lack of air. There's no gravity. So you're just floating around. It's hard to move. It's hard to see. Everything about space is designed to kill people. It's perfect for horror. Disease and darkness. uh, Disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. (laughs) Guy, could you imagine McCoy in this movie? (laughs) My God. Hell not being able to affect him. Have they ever done hell on a Star Trek episode? Shockingly, no. Weird. That should have been... The, the Kelvin timeline, that's how it starts. They accidentally enter into the hell dimension. Oh, that's how we were going to meet uh, Chris Hemsworth as <laughs> Kirk's dad. <laughs> they just jump back, and then they come to our universe where all the characters have goatees. Oh, the real mirrorverse! To reference this twice in this commentary series, could you imagine if that was just what the Nexus was? <laughs> it's just a passing through hell. Is Chris Hemsworth just chopping wood forever? <laughs> And one last thing about uh, the scene we just saw with the giant gouge in the ship releasing air. I love that ticking time bomb element on top of everything else. 
it really adds an urgency level to the movie. It's not just that it's haunted. It's not just that there's a chance, you know, they could all die. One guy's in a coma. In the back of your head, you're always worrying, if they don't hurry up, they will run out of air and suffocate. I don't think the movie does a good job pushing that angle. Like, it's a plot point throughout, but you never see anyone stop and be like, boy, I am dying of oxygen deprivation. It just, it kind of gets pushed past. Like, no one has a physical symptom due to it. But in concept, I really like that idea to just turn the heat up on the situation a little more. They never let you forget it, which helps a lot. Like, they don't do a good job of showing anyone being affected by it, or... It never really feels like an immediate danger, but it adds a nice... uh, a nice added element of danger. That's kind of different, too. You don't really get the CO2 thing in most of these. It's usually just, oh, we're running out of air, not, yeah, we're just, every time we breathe, we're slowly killing ourselves. <laughs> Plus, it works as a good plot device, too, to get people to move around and go to different parts of the ship. So, I mean, it, it's a central part of video game movies set on spaceships, I've noticed. Like I mentioned before, this was a huge inspiration, in my opinion, to the uh, video game Dead Space. Just in the ship design, in in the general plotting, the idea of religion mixed into space. But one of the deals, if you've ever played that game, it gets frustrating because there's a central tram that takes you around the Ishimura. And it's really just like, oh, we need a screwdriver. Go to the West Wing. And then you fight through a bunch of rooms, have monsters pop up and try and kill you. You mutilate them, you get to the room, you flip a switch or like grab an item, head back, and they're like, great, now that you have the screwdriver, use it to turn on the radio. It's up on that side of the building. And you have to repeat all that in a different side. And it's a lot of things that drag out the experience. You're not just trying to get from one end of the ship to the other. You have to crisscross it back and forth to do all of your little tiny busy work goals. And I feel like they might have picked some of that up from here because they do have pieces like that. They're not just checking out the gravity drive. They have to do things like, okay, let's go over to the med bay, check on this character. Let's go look for a broken fuse over here. Let's go fix the broken uh, the broken valve that's releasing air into space. They've invented a movie that has the structure of a video game. Which there is a lot of minutia. Great advantage of. Yeah, which is something you would never... Peg Anderson for like you don't look at the guy who made the Resident Evil franchise and think that's a guy obsessed with minutia. But there are so many microscopic details in this movie that really fascinate me. Like the fact that he went as far as to design custom flags for each of the crew members that are speculative sci-fi fiction uh, flags. Like, uh, the American flag has 55 stars. The English flag has an EU symbol. And the Australian flag has the Union Jack replaced with an Aboriginal symbol. Which you would never fucking notice unless you just pause this movie and zoom in and pay super close attention. But... That was really, really important to Anderson. Like, this was him trying to be Kubrick. (laughs) I'll never quite know what went wrong with Anderson. He just started 
becoming a parody of himself and then kept parodying the parody over and over again until they just all the parodies overlapped and it was just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. The Anderson who made the last Resident Evil movie isn't the Anderson who made the first Resident Evil movie, or the Anderson who made the second Resident Evil movie, or the Anderson who made this, or Soldier, or uh, even Three Musketeers, and especially not the Anderson that made Mortal Kombat. It's or shopping, a... which is a hell of a thought. <sighs> An odd journey. And I'll, I'll go back. As a kid, uh, I thought Mortal Kombat was the shit. I had a poster of Mortal Kombat hanging directly <laughs> over my bed, so I got to stare up at that cool dragon logo each night. Uh, oh, to interrupt that thought, this was one of the segments that was originally a little longer in the movie, where we cut down, see the boy's uh, sword-covered legs. It cuts back to her, and then we cut back a second time to the legs, and this time... They're covered in maggots. And apparently that was a step too far for audiences. They just were revolted by the idea of a child covered in maggots. And uh, it was one of the things that was jettisoned after the first preview screening. It was just too much for audiences. Maggots. Not even once. And I don't even really quite know what she's reacting to. Yeah, you get, you get the sores there. And you see your child for a second earlier. But it's never quite explained you know, what's going on with your kid. You see he's in a wheelchair, but it, it's kind of fly-by stuff you can miss easily. Anyways, back back to the uh, Anderson stuff. So yeah, I had, I had the Mortal Kombat poster in my room. I loved it. Uh, and that was a huge success for him. The budget on Mortal Kombat was about $20 million, and it brought in over $120 million at the box office. Huge success. And he's kind of said that gave him the leverage to do this movie the way he wanted to do it, mostly, because... His last film was a huge success, so the studio wanted more of that. So, then we get Event Horizon, which did not do well at the box office at all, which is a shame, because going back and watching those two movies now, I, I think most of you would agree, Mortal Kombat doesn't hold up so well. Event Horizon, pretty entertaining still. Right, well, Event Horizon is definitely Anderson's masterpiece. I will go to bat for Mortal Kombat. That Bam. is exactly the movie Mortal Kombat needed to be. <laughs> I think the tone was right. It's just uh, there's some very dated parts. Again, like Reptile being that weird CGI critter. Some <laughs> the other. Uh, we don't know what we need to get in Mortal Kombat. That's uh, a later pop at a tragedy. <laughs> I, I, I will fucking do a dead serious commentary for Mortal Kombat at any point. <laughs> uh, back a second ago, I think we got our most cube shot of the film. <laughs> Anyways, after after Mortal Kombat and Event Horizon, he did Soldier, the Kurt Russell unofficial Blade Runner spinoff, another box office bomb. But then he pulled it back together, got in the studio's good graces with Resident Evil, which grossed over a hundred million bucks. It spawned five sequels so far. They're trying to remake it at the moment. There's been like a CGI trilogy unrelated to the movies. The video game series has come back being popular. Big deal, big deal for him. And most of this didn't impact me. You know, I haven't seen Soldier to this day. Uh, Resident Evil was something I didn't see in theaters, so I didn't have an opinion of it. It was Alien vs. Predator that caught my eye. Because as a kid, also a huge fan of Alien, huge fan of Predator. I couldn't wait to see these two movie monster classics go at it. Uh, and I missed it in theaters. 
I was so bummed. It only played for like two weeks or something in my theater, and I didn't get a chance to see it. I was so desperate, I actually downloaded a copy off the internet, like a really shitty cam video. Half of the movie was the back of some guy's parka. <laughs> didn't matter. I still got to watch the movie, and I couldn't believe it. I was just devastated by that film. And uh, I just I couldn't believe it that the guy who made Mortal Kombat, my favorite childhood movie, also destroyed two of my favorite childhood films. I know that's being, you know, way overboard. I, I spent years just going on movie forums to bitch about this film. I know I'm being dramatic. But at the time, I really felt like I'd been betrayed. Uh, naturally, when the sequel came out, I forced all my friends to go with me to see it opening weekend. But Alien vs. Predator still made $172 million off of a $70 million budget. It was a success. I just was so weirded out. I felt like he killed two of my favorite franchises at one time. And I don't know, that's one I revisit every so often, and I think I should like it more than I do. And I, for some reason, I just can't bring myself to love it. I do honestly wonder sometimes... Did Anderson just say to himself, well, the time I went prestige didn't work, so time to shit it up. Like, I, I wonder if there's like a cert, if there's any kind of cynicism to that. Like, is he just intentionally not trying? Because it not if that's true, not trying has been extremely lucrative for him. Yeah. I, I, Anderson clearly likes schlock. Like he's always enjoyed working in that realm. He's kind of talked about that sort of stuff. I think Anderson wants to do prestige schlock, but you know he's shown a lot of talent uh, here and there. Obviously, with Event Horizon, pretty much all the way through. Even Event Horizon has schlock appeal to it. That's yeah. but the the schlock in it is prestige schlock. I, I think Anderson, when he's making stuff like Resident Evil and Alien vs. Predator, which even that in hindsight isn't... You know, I hated that movie when it first came out, but I've kind of come to appreciate it to a degree. Um, and going off the idea of pristine schlock, or prestige schlock, just, just that phrase to me immediately makes me think of the facehuggers jumping through the air in full slow motion. Yes. Like, <laughs> that's, that's the epitome of that phrase to me. Like, it looks really slick, but then you think, like, okay, what? <laughs> you've completely destroyed the original premise of what made that scary. Yeah. And you see that even with, the, like, his Three Musketeers and stuff. I, I, he seems to be going for a kind of tone. He just... I, I hate to be this, like, black and white about, but just failing at it miserably. Like, I don't think Anderson's not... Does, I don't think Anderson doesn't have talent. I think he's, there was a time where he was more self-aware about what he was going for, and that fell away over time. And that's why he just kept ramping up with things like the Resident Evil pictures. And considering they kept being more and more successful, he felt like the ramping up was a good way to go. Oh yeah, if it makes money, why not do it? Yeah, so it just, it makes you lose perspective af after a while. So the Anderson who made this is different than the Anderson who's making, uh, like, Monster Hunter right now. Or who made the last, you know, all the Resident Evil movies, honestly. 
it, just going for something different than I, I think what he discovered he had been originally good at. Uh, I just want to follow that up by saying my ideal of prestige schlock is Lawrence Fishburne saying, what are you trying to tell me? That this ship is alive? <laughs> alive, you say? We can make a supercut of people reacting to the supernatural in angry ways that are fun. <laughs> like childs in the thing. Do you believe any of this voodoo bullshit? <laughs> just a supercut of all of those reactions. They're always Frank highlights of the movie. A Frankenstein monster in this day and age? <laughs> I'd say one of my favorite moments probably in any horror film has to be when Justin's uh, uh, convulsing on the table uh, saying, he's coming, the dark, and then cut to a flaming burnt man coming out of water. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, so oh, I'm just oh, sexually alive right now. <laughs> oh, so, I love this shot so fucking much. Earlier in the movie, I mentioned that this is a bit of the haunting. And Anderson mentions this as well in the DVD. He says, well, in my mind, this is a better version of the haunting than the remake we got in 1999. <sighs> and you can see a lot of the same principles of the big scares in that movie being here is the knocking, the slow pull-ins. <laughs> more sparks uh, I think Biddle's done an amazing job filming this film as well compared to Virus and Deep Rising this is the most active camera we're going to get it, it's constantly kind of s moving around the actors it's kind of snake-like it's pulling back, it's very active it feels like an actual human being is standing there watching all of this and there's such a big switch when it's those dramatic high-tension scenes. The camera work gets a little bit more frantic. You get the Dutch angles. Like right now. <laughs> and then that haunting uh, effect on the doors kind of turning into like a jello as something pushes through them. Little, even though he's working on a genre flick, goes all out. Like he wants you to see all the tricks he's got at his disposal and does a wonderful job making disorienting offsetting scenes even more powerful. Also, maybe the guy just couldn't find a tripod, so he's like, fuck it, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, he's... I love how much the cinematography of this movie and the set design complement each other so much. Like, one could not exist without the other. It's like a, a perfect mishmash. It didn't surprise me at all uh, doing research that they intentionally designed the ship like a gothic cathedral, but just folded in on itself. Yeah, he mentioned like he, he looked at the idea of a cathedral, and if you just turn it upside down, you can maybe slap that onto the engines of a ship, and you know, that'd, be, that'd be your thrusters. I mean, I think that's kind of a classic architecture design trick, too. What if we just took a normal structure and made it upside down? It's, it's fresh, but familiar. Wait, that wasn't right. <laughs> Justin's near death here. Uh, spoilers. One of the most disturbing to me in the movie. Oh, yeah. The idea that not only does he go through the coma, but he comes out of it 
wakes up, goes in this airlock, then realizes, with just enough time to realize what's going on, but not enough time to fix it, that he's screwed. He's going to be shot out of this airlock. His eyes explode, his veins all swell up, and then he lives. You have to think, like, he might have been better off dying. (laughs) But that ties into the captain's whole thing. He can't let someone die. He's got too much guilt. So even if he's saving a frozen near corpse that may never wake up, he has to do it to assuage his own guilt. And this is the most unintentional joke in the movie. But when Baby Bear here goes to push uh-huh. the button and then does the switcheroo at the last second right here from inner to outer door. <laughs> Which is just for him. <laughs> like, no one else can see that. Just, uh, you know. Like, that's just a, an instant meme. It's to fuck with the audience, but it's one of those, like, that's always been hilarious to me. Yeah, it's a shame sh- because it's, it's that tinge of schlock. Yeah, it's that that stupid little bit in there in what's an otherwise really effective, unsettling scare. I hate this. The dude's powerless. He did it to himself, but he wasn't in control of himself. Yeah, you never see anybody come out of the possession right before they die. It's something I love about uh, the the way, I guess the entity of hell is kind of played and how it fucks with all of them is um what was the name of that alien movie with ironically Mila Jovovich again uh, uh, the fourth kind right? uh, the fourth okay. kind yes oh oh i thought you were talking about something set in space not no, just with aliens um, okay but uh Jamie and i love that movie because of the, the fact the aliens are fucking evil and malevolent and <laughs> Which you don't usually see, and I love the. I mean, it's hell, so obviously it's evil, but the pure malice of it, the way it actually fucks with you, in a way you don't usually get in a horror movie. So, so of course, it, it unpossesses Justin after he presses the button so he can have the full <laughs> fear of what's about to happen to him. Just to be a dick. And it's, it's kind of a running thing in this movie, too. People realize what's happening just a second too late. Uh, when Peters falls off the bridge, she, she realizes what's going on right before she falls. Um, when Pertwee realizes where the bomb is, he gets to see it with like five seconds left on the count, countdown, so he can't turn it off, and he can't run away. He knows he's just going to explode. There's a lot of moments in this movie where people just have to come to terms with their mistakes. And about five seconds and then die. If only there was a shot at the end of Weir looking down and going, did I cut off my dick? <laughs> Explosion. <laughs> God, I love Another... the, the columns in this movie. <laughs> I know. You can just stare at those forever. Oh, yeah. Fun little detail here. If you look at Isaacs, throughout the first half of the film, He's wearing a big vest loaded with medical tools and doodads and props. And apparently that was Isaac's idea because he had watched a lot of sci-fi films as a kid. And his favorite was just seeing all the utility belts on people. He, he said, if I'm going to be in a sci-fi film, I want to be loaded down like that. I want to look like I'm just decked to the nines. And then halfway through the film, he told Anderson, why did you let me do this? This is dumb. Because... <laughs> props were constantly falling out of his jacket and ruining takes or he had to keep track of all of them for continuity and none of them were secured uh so at a certain point in the movie he just ditches the vest i'm pretty sure because of that conversation (laughs) although i imagine 
I mean, movies aren't shot in chronological order, so I'm sure they had to do a lot of fiddling back and forth to make sure the vest should or should not be on in any given scene. Oh, God. To be in charge of continuity on an in- ensemble film must be the real hell on Earth. Oh, God. We need more Polaroids. Also, yeah, I love this. Pulling my eyes out. And speaking of schlock, hey, look outside that window. In space. <laughs> Go 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 go! Smoke. <laughs> it's it's the little thing, and I don't even say that as like shitting on anything, but it's like it's just it's to make it look like it's a dark and stormy night outside. Yeah, uh, we just got lightning with the <laughs> the lights flickering. It makes the frame more interesting. So yeah. uh, fuck the logic. Here's something that's going on because it is a better look. If that was just a black, that'd be boring. But having the clouds just move past it slightly makes everything feel more alive and engaging to the audience. Pays to be schlocky when you know what the fuck you're doing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think this scene does a good job representing the different types of scares we have in this film. There's type one where there's something unsettling going on and the camera really does the, the work to let us know we should be unnerved. And here's all these kind of whip turns as we look down hallways and there's no one there but we still hear the voice it's effective unsettling horror it's a little bit psychological because we don't see much if anything second type upsetting gore shots which we don't have any here and then three cheap jump flashes like right now (laughs) which adds in the upsetting gore shots so it's kind of a mix in my mind, the jump flashes, the jump scares in this movie fail more often than they hit. Uh, part of that was probably just due to the fact that they were rushed to edit this thing down. So I think they didn't quite tweak it the way they should have. But there's a lot of examples in my mind of jump scares that simply do not work. Uh, Sam Neill, when he's shaving at the start of the movie, and then the window blinds open quickly, or close, I can't remember the order. That never lined up in my mind enough to be effective. That scare right there, I mean, the pause is a little bit longer than I expect, but it still isn't an unexpected scare. Something about the timing is just off, where it doesn't make me jump. There's there's a lot of these quick, ah, things happening, that never land. There's just, the editing isn't tight enough to make it really connect with me. Oh, considering this movie was edited in, what, a couple of weeks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not surprised. Like, it's a miracle this movie is coherent at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had their uh, initial cut that they went and showed that was over two hours long. And the audience felt it was too long. The studio really didn't care for how long it was. And they requested that, uh, you know, 30 minutes or something be cut out. And Anderson agreed because the movie was too long. Part of the problem was they did the screenings in America. They filmed in England. And they had to load everything up and travel between countries and get everything set up and do the editing you know, on the side. So he had something like four weeks to do all this work between screenings. And, you know, there was a week of travel in between the two. So it was more like he had two weeks to truly do the editing and get a lock on this thing. And that's with removing 30 minutes of film out of a two-hour picture. So... I can definitely sympathize with why Anderson wasn't happy with the final product. They had to move too quickly to nail a lot of things. And that's, yeah, just a shame. 
because I, I think if he had used all of his time to work on delivering one good hour, 45-minute cut, we would have had something really, really special. Anderson's... Or maybe I'm just pretending. I don't know. I've never seen the extra footage. <laughs> Anderson's rough cut was rushed. He didn't like it. He didn't want to show it to anybody. He had to edit together uh, the, the first rough cut in just a very short amount of time. Usually, um, Writer's Guild rules give you ten weeks. Uh, he did it, I think, in four? Three or four? It's the time he had to do the rough cut that got shown to test audiences. Yeah. Um, he, had, he had ten weeks, but I think because he was doing some reshots or something like that, uh, it, it cut into his time without him realizing it until he's like, yeah. oh, fuck. Gave away 40% uh, of my time, or 60% of my time. And there was a set release date. It was like a whole fucking mess. So he showed a cut that didn't have completed anything in there that the edit itself wasn't even complete. Yeah. And that's what they went over for the test audience, which was Anderson didn't expect it to go well, and it went as disastrous as he thought. And he did want to cut it down, but he wanted to cut from, the, I think, the 30 minutes, he wanted to cut maybe 15 to 20. <laughs> Just pacing stuff. And the studio decided all the gore needed to go, pretty much. Uh, they, it needed to be way leaner. Way shorter, because the test audience said it was long. So and that this be equaled, PG-13? <laughs> so that equaled super short to them. Um... <laughs> And it was Plus, only... the movie made it to the review board, got an NC-17, so they had to go back yep. and cut out even more gore. Yeah. And <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> and the uh, one of the even more of a tragedy is only a year afterwards, one of the studio executives went, "No, we were wrong." <laughs> it was it was uh, John Goldwyn, the actual head of production for Paramount, said, "Yeah, we we screwed that up. We could have had a much better movie." And they offered him the chance to actually go and make a real director's cut for them to re-release on DVD. And that's when the and, search began. Yeah, and that's when another tragedy strikes. They had to go literally around the world to track down all of these missing elements of the original like work prints and stuff. And they, they found them stored in odd places. Uh, one of the stranger ones was apparently an abandoned salt mine in Transylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there. so much. But, and that's uh, what I want to know. To what end? Was it cursed? Ooh, hold up. We're also getting oh, yeah, what I think this. is the most effective part of the movie, the hell orgy. Fucking so, fun, awesome. Uh, <laughs> just holding eyeballs, the fingers going down a throat and ripping out entrails. A lot of it's hinted at, but I mean, it's, uh, the blood you do get sells everything else. Fun story to go with this. I first saw Event Horizon in college. I didn't really know what it was. I heard people online talking about it, saying it was pretty spooky. Uh, I lived in an overflow room, which basically means it's twice the size of a normal dorm room. We can have more people in it. So we would do movie parties pretty much every weekend, you know, just invite people in. I'd drag out a movie and we just watch whatever I had. A lot of horror movies. Uh, so I dragged a bunch of people into my dorm. We stole a couple of couches, some pallets. Everyone sat in and watched Event Horizon, which turns out is a lousy party movie. It just <laughs> ruins the mood for the evening. How depressing. So, so we, we got done watching Event Horizon, and my roommate basically turned to me and he's like, I never want to see that again. And I'm like, oh, you didn't like it? And he's like, I was terrified. <laughs> Good. And, and apparently the uh, hell orgy was the thing that really did him in. Like, he was fine with the rest of the movie, but 
those shots just completely freaked him out, and it was way too much, and he had a hard time sleeping that night. He just didn't like it at all. Well, it's a party gone wrong. I can understand why that was a bad party movie. <laughs> I, I was close to ripping my own eyeballs out, so I know the feeling. If only it was the full it's... cut version. I know, it's amazing to think that in the hypothetical director's cut, that would have just been a chunk of the movie. Right, there is a extended version of the finale you can watch where when Weir uh, gives him the vision of hell, what you see of hell is longer like in that one scene than all of the shots of hell in the existing movie. Because I think edited all together, they're like 30 seconds. Yeah, I kind of like that touch, though. Just it leaves you wanting more, which is maybe better than seeing too much hell and going, oh, hell is kind of silly. Uh, what the little bit of footage that exists of the stuff they shot is infinitely gnarlier than what you see in this movie. Oh yeah. yeah. They spent a lot of time filming the hell scenes. They said they spent like weeks putting it all together to use like 20 seconds at a time. Oh, fucking uh, Anderson was pulling seven day shifts where he would just film that second unit on the weekend, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Away from the watchful eye of the studio. <laughs> And okay, two things. One, I love for some reason the way that the 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 drive is um alive and the way it the lights light up. It's almost like it's talking or something. I just love that little touch. But uh the Bring big thing me with a the... ham sandwich, mortal. <laughs> so the big thing with the the visions of hell and the the orgy is Anderson was pulling from Hieronymus Bosch for like all the visuals in those two sequences. And you can see, you can still see some of it from from what we get. Um, we did just see Peter's walking through a coffin-shaped door, and there's another one. <laughs> These things aren't exactly subtle. Not at all. Schlock, prestige, schlock. Because um, I, I think Anderson, with the production designer, went and looked at a lot of um, like medieval paintings and whatnot, and discovered Bosch that way. Um, if you don't know who around this Bosch, um, just have some. Have some fun on Google Image Search for a while. <laughs> it's good stuff. He was severely mentally ill and was hired by the church to invent hell, essentially. Um, <laughs> and it's gnarly and fucked up and weird and sexual and just diseased, honestly. And that's what's um, that's what's in a lot of the deleted stuff. And that's what's a shame to lost to uh, to have lost. Jesus, love, that's brutal. I love that shot. Normally, when someone falls off a great height in a movie, uh, there's like a car in the way to block the bottom of the shot, or the camera cuts quick to give the illusion they have crashed into the ground. That one, they did an amazing job, really, with the dummy and all that to, to make it feel like, oh, no, we really just watched her fall several stories. Such weight to it, and that explosion of blood. <laughs> <laughs> so I am personally holding out like hope against hope that this is going to be a night breed situation where like 10 years from now, someone's going to find the director's cut of this movie in a yard sale. Here's just the entire work print. Yeah. A few years ago, Anderson did say all the elements they'd found were too damaged to use. So they, they found pieces, uh, but the only really surviving prints now are on video and they, they could do a night breed thing where they, do their best to digitally clean up the video, but you can only do so much there. 
and maybe they just splice in standard def images with high def. Eh, that's an option. People always are a little bummed out, but geez, there's only so much you can do. They went to Transylvania for Christ's sake. <laughs> I they do. battled Dracula. Like honestly, I'm fine with it. They because I know Anderson uh, in 2017 said that. Well, he had found it a little while beforehand, but found a VHS of the rough cut. Mm. Um, but when he finally was able to watch it, it was just too degraded. Because that, that's yeah. the thing. When it's on video, it's just a ticking clock. Because mm-hmm. it just degrades sitting there. Um, right. Honestly, I'd be fine. You know what? Fuck it. It doesn't look good. I just want to see what what the movie was supposed to be. Because as it stands now, it's great. Like, it's fucking awesome. It's very effective. It's a solid kind of instant classic. But damn, is it hard knowing that there's like, like the real vision of it is just not yeah. here. Two things about the scene. One, it always really bothered me that her closed eyes still have eyeballs behind them. <laughs> in my mind, if you have no eyes, there shouldn't be anything bulging your eyelids out. It should be like flapped in. I don't like it. It doesn't. Ugh, that bothered me for some reason. Not even in a disturbing way. I'm just like, it doesn't seem feasible in my mind that she'd have bulging phantom eyes. <laughs> Two, earlier in that scene, uh, Sam Neill looks around and his vision goes, I'm home. And he'll say that, I think he actually already said it earlier to one, uh, one of the other characters, oh, I'm home. Another connection back to the haunting. Uh, Nell in that movie kind of has a, a similar arc to Sam Neill here where she goes to a place that everyone else finds sinister. She falls in love with it and decides this is where she belongs and eventually destroys herself so she can stay there forever and no one can pull her away from it. Neil does essentially the same thing. He uh, sacrifices himself to this evil, lets it possess him and control him just so he can force everyone else to stay on the ship with him forever. So I love how... Uh, going back to the uh, weird accidental trilogy that these three movies are, I love how all three of these contain a character who responds to the madness on his ship by going native and becoming the main villain. <laughs> that was my God! Huge... He's taken all of it. It was a huge surprise <laughs> to me watching this film for the first time, though, because I expected Sam Neill has to be the main character. He's introduced first. He's the most famous person in this movie when it was made. Right? Yeah. So you just assume, oh, that's the guy. And it was very confusing to me because everyone else in the movie treats him like an asshole. From the second he walks on screen, the whole crew is like, uh, this dick is making us quit vacation so he can go on a wild goose chase. They yelled him for not using layman's terms, and he's just trying to explain the science. And they're constantly at odds. And then it makes sense when it flips and you realize, oh, he's the science dick. Like in a, in a 1950s <laughs> movie about science gone wrong, that's his archetype. And we're not supposed to like him. He really is the bad guy, and he's ruining things for all of these good, hardworking space rescue folk. You can't kill the alien. I have to study it. <laughs> exactly. Also, a... boy, this is like the most tragic part of the movie. Him just oh, finding yeah. the bomb and the reaction Pertwee puts into this. Just the pathos, just the pure, like, I've lived a life of regret. <laughs> it's so randomly oh. realistic. <laughs> just that, you know, four seconds of... I am very sad about everything that just happened. It communicates a lot in a little. Yeah. Uh, but the um, great thing about the you know, protagonist, you know, movie fucking with you thing about who the actual protagonist is, is it makes rewatches so good. 
Oh yeah. You can kind of pinpoint like, okay, this is when he started going local, uh, loco, and this, it just, I don't know. I, there's maybe not as much to it because he, he kind of flips a switch at a certain point compared to some other things where there's a clear motive. But just that whole change in perspective makes a second watch worth it. Now that All because uh, he gave in to the madness in that movie theater. <laughs> I'm glad you think of that as well. It's very similar performance. But speaking of performance, uh, fucking also this. Just all of this. <laughs> this is spectacular. Every bit of this. Fuck. Like this, this is where we get the seeds of future Anderson. So. Yeah. This scene will later become his entire career. At least here it's delightful. <laughs> like was it why wasn't this the tone of Jason X? <laughs> God it should have been. God, could you imagine Anderson doing Jason X? He would have brought that home. <laughs> hey, look, Wally. <laughs> we also have uh, the very disappointing surprise exit of uh Isaacs here. Yeah. The, the, the first time I watched this movie, this character just gave me the heebie-jeebies. Like, there's something about the intensity in his eyes where I've never trusted. Like, you see Isaacs in any movie, and you're always like, that guy's up to something and is evil. Was he always feels like the villain. And now, I'm like, okay, so this really creepy vil- evil guy, the villain, in my mind originally, before we find out that's definitely not the case, gets to go against the actual villain. This should be a mano-mano huge fight, and then immediately killed. <laughs> it's a great surprise. Also, something that was dropped from the movie, a lot of the characters are killed by representations of past trauma or fears, and for DJ's character, it was supposed to be that he had gone through some traumatic surgery earlier in his life, and if you know the shirt's off, you can see that big scar running down his body. Uh, something that's not really truly elaborated on in this version of the film. We get him being killed by surgical instruments, and we see his body hung up later, with the, you know, the flesh all peeled back. But I, I think unless you're watching the special features, you're not going to make those connections on your own. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that was like 90% of what was cut out of the movie was just going into every crew member's specific backstory and nightmare. Yeah. Like this part, apparently DJ was supposed to, even though like clearly dead, still lift his head up one last time to freak out the captain. Yeah, Miller was supposed to kill him to put him out of his misery. Yeah. Which would have been an interesting twist for his character, because as we mentioned before, uh, he saves Justin, even though that's a character that's maybe never ever going to wake up, and has just had his eyeballs exploded out of his head, and also saw hell, so probably not going to be a happy dude if he ever wakes up. So that would have been a good turning point for the captain, where he kills that guy and then realizes he can make the ultimate sacrifice of himself to save everyone else. Yeah. Uh, the uh, extended version... Uh, that you can find on YouTube even has Fishburne just breaking down completely and vomiting and just looking at him, his reflection on the floor with like blood streaked across his face. Like it's really intense. Like it, as cool as it is to see Lawrence Fishburne respond to that by immediately grabbing a sci-fi gun. <laughs> I like, I think the film would have, uh, benefited from that very real moment of, oh my god, oh my god, I just saw a dude cut open. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's just such a shame no you one had to like, wait what's till sitting somewhere. <laughs> like what this film is is fine, but what the film is supposed to be will just break your heart, honestly. But that said, I am still amazed by how much this movie works because I like like all the other movies in this series. I only watched these recently for the series, and. I was always under the impression that people liked Event Horizon because it was a chop-to-shit movie that had some really good parts, and it was fun imagining what could be. Kind of like how I felt about uh, Nightbreed before the director's cut was finally found. But no, this is just a great movie. This is just a really, really good sci-fi horror. Despite the cuts, it's still spooky. It's still effective. I love all the practical things. Like, I think the gore that stands in the movie is very well done. Uh, I'm a sucker for old-school practical miniature model spaceships, too. Anytime I see one in a movie, I'm always like, yeah, this makes me happy. There's a, there's a lot to love in the movie. Oh, if you didn't know there was any, like, you know, studio interference, you know, editing crap. You really wouldn't notice. You're like, oh, this movie's a little soft in places with character stuff, but you wouldn't think anything was really wrong with it. No, I really was amazed to learn how quickly they pulled the movie together, editing-wise. Like, it was so rushed, it's a miracle it's this coherent. Like, how is this not fanboys? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I can complain about, really, is I think the jump scares never got the attention they needed because those have to be technically perfect or they do not work for me. And I've seen in big budget horror movies really well done. Otherwise jump scares that simply don't work because there's something missing in the punch in the way they were designed. Not to, not to rag on the version of it that we just got a few years back. I love that movie, but the scares, the jumps had never worked. Even in a theater with giant speakers, they never got me to hop and that's strange, because there's a lot of low-budget kind of crappy horror films that will get me to pop out of my seat. So it's all just about technical greatness. Oh, the perfect jump scare is a goddamn art. That's why like, I understand why people kind of roll their eyes at jump scares in movies, because it can often come across as very cheap. Mm-hmm. But when it's bad, you notice. Yeah. Look like, at that the is not an easy thing to pull off. Good jump scares. James Wan is the king of them. Oh, yeah. The Conjuring 1 and 2 in theaters were just amazing experiences because there's so many moments of great tension and then huge jumps of relief. They, they work so well, and that guy is just a genius when it comes to that side. He can, he can really make you hop. I just want to say, prestige schlock. <laughs> <laughs> and God, fucking... O'Neill's performance. Oh, he's having so much fun. Like I, I've heard <laughs> people say, like, oh, Sam Neill is kind of like maybe a little miscast. He gets a little hammy when he becomes like weird beast or whatever. Um, this thing's been nicknamed the chair. But that's why you get Sam Neill because Sam Neill. I love how he's never forgotten that he was a horror guy. <laughs> Like, he was Damien. Like, the reason he's in Jurassic Park was because he did horror movies, and he kept doing them afterwards, too. Yeah. Like, he has fun with this stuff. 
Like, he's enjoying playing, like, Chaos God Sam Neill right now. <laughs> I can just imagine him getting this script and saying, Oh, I get to play Satanic Alan Grant. <laughs> uh, fun little contrast in acting styles, and one that was apparently a huge headache for Anderson. Fishburne likes to do his acting in about three or four takes. Like, he comes in, he wants to hit all of his lines perfectly and brings all the intensity for the first few takes. And after that, he starts to lose energy and he'll, like, forget lines. He really wants to nail it, and he, he's good at doing the practice and effort to get it done perfect the first time. Neil is the exact opposite. He likes to do a lot of takes and then improvise and work on it and go in with a much looser idea of what needs to be done until he nails it just through kind of experimenting. So you have a guy who only wants to do four takes... And another guy who wants to do, like, eight takes and only gets good after the first four. <laughs> so in those two shared scenes, he said it was a nightmare because they basically had completely opposite styles for how they wanted to do their takes. Not that they had a fight or anything. It was just, how do you get the best performance out of these two guys when they really need opposite things? Solving a math yeah, equation. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, acting gets talked about in very, like, artsy, lofty terms, like, very esoterically, but it always amazes me, like, just how nuts at bolts it can be like that. Like, okay, I want to be here 30 minutes, you want to be here two hours. How does this work? <laughs> Welcome up! Go, space pipe, go! Don't hit me. <laughs> Don't hit me. <laughs> Leave my ADR alone. I love that this is a 90s horror movie where the survivors are a blonde lady and two black dudes. The fact there's, there's this many survivors at all is really impressive. Well, we all forgot about poor Justin. Of course. Everyone poor, does. Poor, poor kind of baby does, bear. They, oh, they show bear. him in the tube. They just kind of stow him away. He's no longer a character. Well, Once again, that's kind of her because there were other some other scenes involving like him in the tube, but gone yeah yeah it's probably the best like the biggest storytelling casualty of the cut down is you kind of forget that characters are in the movie or where they are in relation to each other or even even like stonk like what i can't tell you anything about her character which is a shame because almost everybody else is overloaded with personality and she's just kind of there she's british yeah yeah they, they don't give her a lot of moments, and I don't know if that was stuff that was just cut, or they just didn't have enough time to develop that big of an ensemble, and her character just suffered for it. I know there's supposed to be backstory stuff between her and Miller, and that is stuff that probably ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah. I like to think that her vision of hell was being unconscious. <laughs> Blood, this fucking bit, I love this so much. <laughs> it's just so fucking weird. Like, And then the ship starts bleeding. The... The idea that the ship itself became alive because hell possessed it, like it's in this weird extension of hell, it's that is so <laughs> unique and cool. Like Although, that could have been the movie by itself. Yeah, but to cap it off, we get the shining homage, which is a strange <laughs> thing to do because the shining blood elevator is so iconic. It's impossible to show dropping blood coming out of something without making the audience think of that shot. At this point, it's almost an homage, or not an homage anymore. It's it's like a parody if you do it. Like, people are just going to laugh and go, oh, The Shining. 
I would I would say like no one should ever do the blood drop again because it's it's already kind of been tapped out and totally dried up by how memorable The Shining is. Yeah, but all Just those weren't in space. Bleed. Just make the walls bleed. It's fine. Did... Walls don't bleed in movies enough. The walls in the 53rd precinct are bleeding. <laughs> but uh, I kind of feel like that is very intentional on Anderson's part. Like Part of the I'm reason sure he took the script was, this is The Shining in space. I'm sold. And I feel like that's him saying to the audience, okay, in case you didn't get it, I want you to compare this to The Shining. I want you to have that in your head while watching the third act of this movie because <laughs> it's about to get cuckoo bananas. So and we're getting during... to the third act of an Alex Garland screenplay here. <laughs> while they were filming that fire hallway, they burned down the set. They, <laughs> they had a flamethrower built to shoot the flames forward, but it was pushing out so hard that it tipped over backwards and started shooting flames at the ceiling of the set. Uh, Anderson asked the effects crew, hey, could you put out the fire? And they said, no, the, the off switch is next to the flamethrower that's shooting flames everywhere. Because that's, that's just a wonderful design for your flame gun. <laughs> then it tipped over and started shooting flames into the floor. Uh, apparently there were some combustible gases there that they were worried could have exploded. So they had to abandon the set and then bring in like a fire crew to put everything out. But they almost exploded their entire set instead of just burning it down. Ah, Scorpion! <laughs> <laughs> okay, two thoughts. One, I love how the ship pulled Weir back in for a final transformation. Because A, <laughs> final transformation, and B... The fact he could pull him back in from space somehow, like the, what what does that mean? Like how far does the <laughs> power of that this thing stretch? And I love the implications of that. Um, well, they didn't just pull him back. He's got new peepers. That's <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, um, it's like, okay, is that literally weird, or is that like an idea of weird that it created? Uh, yeah. It gets blurry because they're about to punch each other. So <laughs> there is some physical form of weird there. Uh, that's all the Bosch stuff. A sequence that's like 40 seconds in the extended version. Yeah, you can see still pictures uh, as well of that set. And it's like, yeah, it's definitely just recreations of Bosch paintings, but like on a space station. It's fascinating. There's um, a lot of space barbed wire in there, though. Well, who doesn't love space barbed wire? You gotta, you gotta keep the space cows out. But um, <laughs> this ending as well... Uh, besides the fact there's still more cut out from it, I think Anderson explained like there's a whole monologue cut out, I think, of uh, of this bit. Or maybe even earlier, I don't remember. Where it is actually spelled out, like, no, it's literal hell. Um, I mean, which does still come across, but, you know. Oh, yeah. It is weird, like, the actual, uh, just, like, no, it's not a sci-fi thing, it's literally hell is actually cut out. <laughs> um, But this is... Uh, the ending of this movie is a little bit weird. Third act-wise, it works. But it's <laughs> a jigsaw puzzle uh, sewn together ending of two alternate endings that were filmed because of um, test audiences. And then the other test audiences couldn't decide which one they liked, <laughs> which alternate ending they liked more. So the studio was like, can you somehow edit the two alternate endings together into one ending? 
So that way, both of those test audiences will be happy. <laughs> the true meaning of compromise. Leaving the original ending completely out of the equation. Um, <laughs> As wasn't the original ending just Miller battling the, the Burning Man? Yeah, well, there's there's like three different endings. I forget exactly what the first original one kind of entails. I think it is him battling the Burning Man, but it's like, uh, it's fairly different, I believe. I think we're still involved. Uh, then there's the alternate ending of him just in the in the room, but that fight is just with the Burning Man. It's all pretty much the same. Then there's the, a, a longer thing with Weir, so. Th- like the Burning Man morphing into Weir was just them doing an effect to try to combine both cuts. Uh. Um, and even like everything, even after this, is like a combination of different things. Like there's little bits of the original ending of of the crew being found, but like the jump scare is completely added. It wasn't in any previous ending. Um, there was the original cut had a jump scare. Didn't have a jump scare, but I think. Um, she she heard the screams of the Event Horizon crew again or something, and then was woken up. There wasn't, like, the hammy, uh, over, like, really out of place. He takes the helmet off, and it's weird thing, like, mm-hmm. doing a scary voice. Uh, that was completely 100% just invented, like, because the studio wanted an extra jump scare. Yeah. And... Boy, uh, we we already complained about fake ending jump scares in a virus, and that one felt really bad. This one, I give slightly more of a pass to, and I, I have a couple ideas for why that is. One, Event Horizon just has a lot more goodwill going for it at this point. I've enjoyed yeah. the film a lot more than Virus, so I'm willing to write off a kind of dumb ending. Uh, two, with all the supernatural stuff happening, even though she isn't literally back on the ship, I, I think it's semi-implied that the supernatural elements of hell have somehow stayed with her. Yeah. You could interpret it as a very with weird. dark ending. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still in her head, and she you know, might think she's doomed from this point. She's seen hell. She has to go back to hell. Yeah, it's a nice mirror to Weir's introduction with the ship already reaching out to him in his dreams. I just wish it was, you know, something different, like maybe Weir's in one of the tubes or something, not that, you know, he takes the helmet off and he has a scary line. It would play better if he didn't look like Dark Helmet. Yeah. Yeah. Complete with the same mask going up effect. And yeah, with all the makeup scars, too. What if, you know, he popped up in the helmet and it looked kind of like Weir and you weren't sure? Like, what if they just put Sam Neill in there under heavy prosthetics? And it's not even really a jump scare. It's kind of ambiguous. Was that him? I don't know. That's way too late to consider adding. So I I guess it'll never be. Also, just because Event Horizon couldn't be awesome enough, it ends with a Prodigy song. (laughs) (laughs) this has confused me because the opening and uh end credits are this kind of dancey 90s music that really dates the movie just locks it into 97 whereas the rest of the film has a much more traditional horror score and i don't know how i feel about the blending of the two i think uh you know if i were king of the world i probably would not have used these songs to open and close things (laughs) 
Oh, Anderson wanted Orbital. He worked with Orbital on Mortal Kombat. Orbital, of course, did the Mortal Kombat song that's so famous. Um, right. And he wanted to, and Anderson wanted to bring him back for to this to do some kind of weird like text score. Um, the studio balked at that one, something more traditional, so he brought in Cayman. Uh, but was able to get Orbital on to work with Cayman, so it's um it's like a half and half score. Like they kind of work together. It's why it has that a very weird vibe to it, because uh, it's actually kind of a blending. Cayman and Orbital uh actually composed together for it. I I really don't know why this music choice is over the end credits or why that that techno <laughs> song plays over the beginning. Yet I'm perfectly fine with the. Uh, with funky shit playing over the end credits just because it's, you know, it's a good song. It's a good time to, end, you know, it's a good time. I, I we had a good people, time. Good time. I think people underappreciate how important the impressions are at the start and end of movies. Yeah. Like, if, if a movie has a really strong opening, you've got a blank slate. You can put in anything you want to start a movie. And if it's got some good, interesting, mysterious score, you're going to be drawn in. And you're going to leave the movie with that in the back of your head, like, wow, I really... Like, I was, I was feeling good at the start of this. And then at the end, if you end with this song, you feel like you're about to go to a rave. And that's not what we saw in the movie. We just saw a woman who might now be insane get pulled out of a storage tube after all of her friends were murdered, pretty much. And, boy, it just it puts this sour note in my mind. I still love the movie, but I'm like, boy, this doesn't add up. I don't, I don't get it. If it was something a little more somber, and then they used this a minute or two into the credits... I think it'd be perfect. You know, I don't I don't mind this. I just don't want it right after that ending we got. It totally goes against the tone and muddies the water. You know, it's you know very... what would have been a better song for for this to end on? A bad cover of Desolation Turned down Row. for what? Uh... <laughs> also, uh, to answer your inquiry earlier, Mike... I just learned from the credits. He is the Weir Beast. I saw that ah, Weir yes. slash good, Beast, good. <laughs> which is a strange term to go for, considering he never like sprouts hair and runs around on all fours. Well, it's what Sam Neil calls his cock, Cody. Uh... Also, can I just say I was so happy whenever I got to that third act and saw that this is another movie that has my favorite old horror trope. Horrible men covered in blood, giving monologues about the other side. <laughs> Slowly turning in a space chair. Not a that dimension of pure chaos. It's like the, space chair the entire, is the best part of the movie. Almost the entire reason the void exists, I'm convinced. <laughs> Honestly, if the third act was just Sam Neill in that makeup, covered in blood, giving a fucking speech about hell, 10 out of 10. <laughs> wow, funk shit performed by Farage. As it stands now, solid like eight out of ten, <laughs> which is high. And you know, not once again, not at all really fits with Bop in a tragedy, but it's a tragedy of what happened to Paul W. S. Anderson as a person. Well, we've seen like the basic germ of an idea taken to three extremes, right? With deep. Rising, we got the goofiest shit version. With Event Horizon, we got kind of the prestige version. Right in the middle is Virus, which is kind of nothing. It doesn't know which one it wants to be. Yes, this is when you get a movie that's right down the middle and cannot pick a side. 
and you get Donald Sutherland not taking off his cap. Also, can someone make a fucking sequel to Event Horizon? It's still out there. Like, it just went to hell. It can come back at any point. Hell's still there. No, it landed on Neptune. All they have to do is populate Neptune, and fuck, they could just combine this with Dead Space. Now the marker is just the Event Horizon, and that's how they make hell, and the unification happens. There, There's Lovecrafting monsters. Mutilation's still a big part of the film. Limbs are getting cut off left and right. It all fits together, people. <laughs> do it, do it. You joke, but could you imagine if that was the plot? The event horizon crashes to Neptune. Neptune becomes hell. So hell is just a fucking planet now? I would say you could do that. They show the event horizon going down with the wormhole open, and it lands on the planet and kind of sinks into that cloud and disappears. But you can't see what's under the mist. Hell planet. Head cannon. Here's the fucked up thing. Neo would still totally be into it. <laughs> and they could you put can make an event horizon where you can tell tomorrow. that he's like 70. Yeah. That's a missed opportunity. Here as the Lord of the Hell Planet. Oh, I want it so bad. It's such a great concept. And it's so, like, it's what I love about the ending of Event Horizon is they don't actually stop anything. Like, no, there's just a. Hell has a way of just coming in and out of our world whenever the fuck it wants. With the Event Horizon cruising around like Queen Anne's Revenge. Ah, oh, there's so many story opportunities, alas. But you know what? There is a great a fucking... Tragedy. There's a great fucking story about this that I think is good to go out on. While making Soldier, Anderson was uh, kind of lamenting everything that happened. You know, the movie kind of failed. I think at this point the, the studio had come back and be like, hey, can you go back to your original cut? We're sorry, blah, blah, blah. And he was showing the film to Kurt Russell. And Russell said, after it finished, Russell Russell really liked it, because of course Kurt Russell fucking loved Event Horizon. The man he saw said, Aliens himself. <laughs> Only like two years earlier, too, that's the best part. Um, Russell said, like, you're having a hard, like, you don't, like, you're having a hard time with it now, but in like ten years, you're gonna be so glad you made that movie. And Russell knows his shit, because ten years later, this is, like, that, this became like an all-time cult classic. So you're saying, instead of doing Bop and a Tragedy, we should have just had a series on the wisdom of Kurt Russell. We could literally do a podcast on that. God, I hope that I am lucky enough, like, in my darkest moments, to have Kurt Russell put his hand on my shoulder and give me some sage advice. It'll be modern-day Kurt Russell with the big Santa beard. And you know what? Paul W.S. Anderson took that advice and wasted it on a series of Resident Evil sequels. So, you know, it's... It's more of a story for us. <laughs> we have that to was learn a fun the idea to go out on. <laughs> Let's take this positive story and then twist it. Here's your knife. Bop and a tragedy. Uh, bop and a tragedy. Anyways, folks, that has been the commentary. If you've enjoyed this uh, and you didn't pick up on it before, we've done two other entries this month in the series. We have Virus out there. We have Deep Rising out there. We have a whole smattering of other commentaries that just aren't gathered around that theme. It's the same basic principle. You'll love them. You can find all of that by looking up Box Office Pulp on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. We are on Twitter, and we have our own Facebook page. Please like all of those. Leave us a review. Uh, I'm not desperate for them yet, but it's getting close, guys. Definitely appreciate you checking all that out. Thank you so much. I think that's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie.
Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. You know that entire commentary, we forgot the movies that uh, Anderson turned down to make Event Horizon. Ah, it's true, yep. <laughs> Quick, after credit scene, Jamie, read them. Because we got Event Horizon, we did not get the Paul W.S. Anderson versions of Mortal Kombat Annihilation, X-Files, Fight the Future, X-Men, and Alien Resurrection. Now, I'm glad we've got Event Horizon, but could you imagine the seemingly impossible alternate reality where Mortal Kombat Annihilation is good? Uh, you know, like, six-year-old me definitely can. I like to think the sky would still rain ninjas. <laughs> what if you made the exact same movie? Like, it was literally the exact same movie. Well, the effects <laughs> certainly wouldn't be better. Too bad you will die. I feel like this podcast is going to go out and somehow randomly Paul W.S. Anderson will listen to it and then it will just rag on the entire time. It'll just be sad and I'll feel bad. <laughs> he knows what friend. he did. Be our friend, Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> and can you change your name? I don't want to have to say Paul W.S. Anderson every goddamn time. Like, He's probably I'm so... mad about that, too, I feel. like Probably. It, it, those two have to get together every couple of years and fight for who gets to keep their initials. Well, why not just be Paul W. Anderson? <laughs> why make it complicated? What does the W.S. stand for? Does anyone know? That's a good question. Well, I'm on... I can find this out. I'm on Wikipedia. Um... William Scott. Well, that was disappointing. Yeah, yeah, I was... All right. Huh. All right. You know, makes sense, yeah. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.